Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 9th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. I made my first trip to the docking site of the USS Intrepid, a giant aircraft carrier docked on West 46th Street and the Hudson River. Except I didn't go for the Intrepid. I went for the sailboat docked next to the Intrepid called Ocean Watch, a 64-foot steel-cutter sailboat tied up in New York this past weekend. But they've already moved on to the next leg of their journey. Where are they going? Around the Americas. Ocean Watch set sail at the end of May from Seattle on their 13-month voyage around North and South America, making stops along the way to educate North and South Americans about our oceans and some of the changes happening to them. I met up with Zita Strickland, Ocean Watch's onboard educator, to hear about their journey so far. Well, my name is Zita Strickland, and I'm the first onboard educator for the Around the Americas program. On this beautiful, sunny October day, I've met with Strickland to learn about Ocean Watch, the 64-foot-long sailboat that we're sitting on. Ocean Watch is six months into its 13-month-long journey around the Americas, and they've made a quick stop in New York. Sita, how did this all get started? <laughs> well, this came, this got started. It really was the brain, the brainchild of our captain, Mark Schrader. Mark Schrader has been sailing for many, many years. He's sailed around the world uh, several times, both for himself and in a race. Um, and it came out of the idea of, of looking at the oceans, which is something that, as a sailor, he had been used used and, and used as a resource for many, many years, looking at the oceans, looking at changes that are currently happening in the oceans, and looking for a way to draw attention to some of those changes. So it started with a uh, conversation with founders, David Rockefeller Jr., he's a founder for an ocean conservation group based in Newport, Rhode Island, called Sailors for the Sea. Um, started out talking with them and thinking about what can we do to illustrate and highlight some of these issues around ocean health. And so the idea of, of this expedition started. They looked at the different oceans surrounding North and South America, the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Arctic, and realized that the oceans are actually not all separate, but they connect, and they connect in very fundamental ways around. And so by drawing a circle around North and South America, and by doing a continuous circumnavigation of those two continents, it really is illustrating how North and South America are essentially an island, surrounded by one big ocean. Um, and whatever happens in the land, is affecting what's happening in the oceans, and the oceans are really integral to what we're doing on the land as well. Of course, I've managed to pick a particularly windy day to visit Ocean Watch, so Strickland and I make our way below deck down a small set of stairs and into the boat's cabin. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll do a little tour, why don't you, yeah. and you can see, it's, it's quieter here, at least, because it's farther from the door. This is our captain's cabin. Oh, wow. Strickland leads me around the corner and down a tiny hall into a little bedroom. The ceilings are low, and there's masking tape with Watch Your Head written on it, taped on particularly low door frames. And this is where you guys sleep, in these little beds? Yeah. (laughs) Little is good, actually. Yeah? And this was all new to me, because I had never sailed before. Um, But it turns out, small spaces are better, because when the ship is really moving and bouncing back and forth, a larger space just gives you a larger area to move, you know, fall across before you hit the wall. And so the small bunk is actually a good thing. And then all of our bunks, too, have these cloths um, that they tie up 
and basically form a, another wall to our bed. It's almost like wow. a, a crib railing yeah. that you can raise. This is really useful because when the ship is really moving. I find this kind of stuff fascinating because I've never really been on a sailboat. Until a few months ago, neither had Strickland. She works at the Pacific Science Center in Seattle and got a leave of absence to be the educator on Ocean Watch. So this boat, um, Ocean Watch, left Seattle on May 31st and headed north to Alaska. I joined the boat in mid-July at a little town called Barrow, Alaska, which is the northernmost town in Alaska, so the northernmost town in the United States. And then I was on the boat from Barrow here to New York City. And are you with them for the rest of the journey? I'm not, actually. This marks the, uh, the end of, of my time as the educator on board. There's a new educator, Sarah Bradshaw. She's taken over at this point, and she'll be on the east coast of North and South America. So what's your job as an educator? In this role, my job as an educator is to take some of the science that we are doing, the science research that we have on board, and some of the larger issues around ocean health and find a way to explain it to people, to kids, to adults, to families, um, largely to school children, though, because ultimately, while ocean health is everybody's responsibility, it's, you know, as with mo so many things, it's really it's the next generation. So 64-foot sailboat leaves Seattle sails up and around the Arctic, down the east coast of Canada and the U.S. on its way to the eastern South American coast and back up around Seattle. All the while making stops to educate the people living in the Americas about ocean health. We're looking at these different issues in the ocean. We're also looking at the fact that ocean health, marine science, is not taught in a lot of schools um, in the country. And it, because it doesn't matter where you live in the country. Our captain was raised in Nebraska, our photographer is from Iowa, I grew up in Colorado, and the oceans have a huge impact on you whether you live on the coast or in the middle of the country. Um, some of the changes that we're seeing in the oceans are jellyfish populations. A lot of areas jellyfish populations are, are blooming. You have what are literally called jellyfish blooms. Huge amount of jellyfish. Um, beaches can sometimes be close to swimming. The jellyfish will can sometimes eat all, a lot of the fish. Um, when the jellyfish die, as they decompose, they use up a lot of the oxygen in those waters and you end up with these areas of water that have very little oxygen in them. You end up with these dead zones that are not good for any other life. Um, in some areas the jellyfish are so thick that they are clogging the intake valves of engines. Um, and so insane. there's these big changes with jellyfish and scientists aren't quite sure why these changes are happening and what the, the future effects of all this will be. Um, so one of the scientific research th uh, projects that we have on board is doing opportunistic sampling of jellyfish tissue. So when we see jellyfish, we're taking a, a sample, taking that sample back to scientists, and then the scientists are using the DNA information from those jellyfish to track the species of jellyfish and where they're going to get a better global picture of jellyfish populations. So that's, that's one of the pieces. Um, another big piece is acidification of the ocean. Um, scientists know that as carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, that gas also goes into our oceans. Um, and as carbon dioxide goes into our ocean, there's a fundamental ocean chemi chemistry change that results in oceans that are slightly more acidic. The average pH of our oceans is about 8.2, um, but that's slowly been dropping. That number's been dropping since the start of the Industrial Revolution. As our oceans become more acidic, that has a really profound impact on animals living in the ocean, particularly very small shelled creatures. They're almost too small for us to see. These very, very tiny creatures with these shells, the acid dissolves the shells. The acid also makes shell building material less um, abundant in the oceans. And so these small shell building creatures are having a hard time maintaining their shells. They're the bottom of the food chain, so as they go as their populations drop, it has big impacts to fish and to all the other animals that are living in the oceans. It's rare for scientific research to be conducted on a boat as small as Ocean Watch. That's why Ocean Watch takes advantage of research opportunities, but doesn't have full-scale projects aboard. 
Well, we do have um, eight scientific projects that are on board. Some of them are happening all the time that we're underway. For example, we have a Seakeepers unit from the International Seakeeper Society. This is a, a unit that they have installed on many boats, such as ours, and many, many boats different from ours as well. It has a pump that is all the time that we're underway. It's pulling seawater into the Seakeepers unit and running some tests on it. And then on a computer screen on the wall right above this unit is giving us a real-time display of the data it's collecting in terms of water temperature, water salinity, um, dissolved oxygen level, pH. This is happening like I said, every all the time that we're underway, and then that information is being sent to the Seakeeper Society, so that wherever we go, they're getting some information about the ocean in that area. We also have a suite of meteorology, uh, meteorological equipment on top of our mast. It's interesting because we pull into a harbor where there's lots of sailboats, and the top of most masts will just have two little gauges, one that tells you the direction of the wind and one that tells you the speed of the wind. And we have a rather large platform um, on the top of our mast that is measuring not just wind speed, but also it's measuring temperature, it's measuring radiation, it's measuring you know rain, and, and so a lot of different things that are up there. And those are always going. Um, some things like our jellyfish are really an opportunistic sampling. So when we see a jellyfish, we take a sample, um, and that, that DNA tissue is then used for the jellyfish studies. Um, we're also part of the NASA school program, and the NASA school program is actually looking at some of their weather satellites that are constantly circling the Earth and taking readings on cloud cover. Um, occasionally, though, you need people on the ground that are looking up at the same time the satellite is looking down, and then the people, the observers on the Earth are correlating, are, are making sure that what the satellite is seeing is actually what's happening. Um, it's also very difficult for the satellites with, in areas with snow and ice to get an accurate reading of what's snow and ice and what's clouds. And so these observers on the ground are very important to what's called ground truthing the satellite data. This is something that we do at certain times during the day when the satellite's going overhead. We're also doing a measurement of aerosols. And aerosols are very small particles in the atmosphere that scatter sun energy. The aerosol, the way we measure them with our sun photometer only happens on sunny days. So on sunny days we take a reading with our handheld sun photometer. The measurement we get tells us how much of that sun's radiation is being scattered by those particles in the air. While there's some pretty high-tech science happening on Ocean Watch, another reason why the scientists and others on board can't focus entirely on data collection or research is because everyone is an integral part of the team when it comes to actually sailing the boat. I asked Strickland what the average sailing day on Ocean Watch is like. The thing that surprised me most as a non-sailor coming into this situation is that an average day has a very strange sense of time to it. Because when we're underway, it doesn't matter if we're the onboard journalist, the photographer, the scientist, or the educator, or the captain, but everyone is crew. And so we all stand watches. We have we divide into essentially two watches. And for the most part, when we have six people on board, we'll have two three-person watches. And during the day, you're on watch for four hours, and then you're off watch for four hours as the other watch is on. And at night, that changes to three hours. So it's three hours on, three hours off. Um, because of that cycle, you're all, you know, every three to four hours, you're up and you're working. When you're on off watch, you're either eating a little bit or sleeping. Um, and so in a single 24-hour period, you're up and on watch and then back down to sleep, you know, several times. And so the days take this very strange sense that... You know, sometimes it feels like a whole day has passed and you realize it's really only been nine or ten hours. Hmm. And other times three or four days will pass and you're just sort of in the zone of these three and four hour segments and not really noticing that it's been three or four days. Talk about intense. While Strickland says she's gotten used to the sporadic sleeping, 
There's one thing she wasn't prepared for. What I found challenging was actually trying to keep up with some of the regular quote-unquote normal things in life. Mm -hmm. Because you're that, that three-hour on and three-hour off watch segment, you're not exactly changing clothes each time you get up and go to work. <laughs> um, and so three or four days would pass, and I realized that I hadn't changed my socks <laughs> in a while. Fortunately, on sale, but most of us are probably in the same situation. So if anybody noticed, they didn't really say anything to me. It was amazing that after three days, a fresh pair of socks, how good it felt. Um, and those are the things that you don't really expect in your daily life is just how good a clean pair of socks feel yeah. when you finally get it, you know, when you finally remember to brush your teeth after a day or two. <laughs> like, it's very exciting stuff when you're underway. This podcast will return in 30 seconds after a quick message from Science in the City. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts. You're listening right now. But did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science and the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. Now, the whole time we've been sitting on the boat talking, it's been rocking back and forth, back and forth, up and down, up and down, and I am definitely feeling a little queasy. But Strickland appears unaffected, so I have to ask. I mean, it's so funny because, like, I guess you get used to it, but were you seasick? Um, I was, actually. It's sort of funny that you should ask. I had never sailed before, and one of the questions in my interview from the captain um, was, do I get seasick? And I had to honestly say, I don't know. Yeah. Because I had never done any ocean sailing. All the sailing I had done had just been for an hour or two, you know, on a small boat on a lake. Um, so I said, I don't know. And I sort of figured that I would at first, and then I would get over it, because that's most people's experience. Um, it turns out I do get seasick, and I don't get over it. And so I was actually seasick for most of my time sailing through the Pacific, through the Arctic, and through the Northwest Passage. But it was, um, it was absolutely worth it, and it was, it was such a once-in-a-lifetime experience that, that all I, was, the I, was, I was totally willing to put up with not feeling well and feeling you know, pretty awful. Strickland says that when she first got the job on Ocean Watch, they actually apologized when they told her she'd be on the Arctic leg of the journey. But she says she wouldn't have had it any other way, and that the effects of climate change in the Arctic are so much more evident than anywhere else. I mean, this journey would not have been possible 50 years ago. The first man that sailed through the Northwest Passage was Roland Amundsen from Norway, and he sailed through from 1903 to 1906. It took him three years because he stopped in the, in the middle of this little town called Joa, um, that's now called Joa Haven. He's the, named Joa Harbor after his boat, Joa. I mean, it was a small Inuit village on King William Island. He stopped and wintered over there, was frozen in, and the next year the ice didn't melt enough, so he was he stayed for another winter. So it took him three years to sail his way through. The first sort of modern-day small boat was 1977 um, that came through. So really, we're only just over 30 years the small boats have been doing this. For many years, boats that tried, some would make it through and some wouldn't, and some would be turned back by ice. One of the things that has really struck us is this year, there were nine boats and all made it through. Last year, there was a few boats. The year before, there was a few boats. So the past three years, every boat that's tried has successfully made it through the Northwest Passage. 
and this is something that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, this would not have been possible. Yeah, so it's basically getting easier. It, it is, but that being said, this year there was actually more ice than last year and the previous year. Part of the reason there was some very old ice that was located farther north in the Arctic, that over the past couple of warmer summers, that older ice broke free, drifted down south into some of the navigation channels, and created some navigation hazards for us. So while our trip was possible, we definitely had some times where we would have to stop look at the ice map that we were able to download from the Canadian Ice Survey that would show us where the ice was and how thick of a concentration the ice was. And we would st strategically wait until the time was right and then we would move forward. And there were times where there was, we were physically surrounded by ice, big chunks of ice floating around that we would sort of have to weave our way around. And so you would see, you know, we could see where we were, we could see where we wanted to be, and sometimes the path to there wasn't a straight line, but it was instead with this long weaving back and forth pattern where it might take us, you know, 10 miles of movement to go forward just three or four miles. I asked Strickland if she had a favorite stop along the way. You know, we stopped at a place um, called Pierce Point Harbor that was fairly early on in our in our voyage. And we stopped there for several days because we were, we were looking at the ice charts and knew that we had to wait for some of the ice to, to clear up and to break up for us to have a, a fairly safe passage through. So this harbor had an old outf um, outfitter's cabin, and there was people that had been there before, but no one was there. There was nobody else there but us. We ended up spending several days there and several days going to shore and hiking around and wandering around. It was just a really interesting blend of history. This outfitter's cabin had some notes on the table from travelers who had come through in the past couple of years who needed a place to stop and get warm. And so they had left notes describing their journey and thanking, thanking the owners of the cabin for the chance to, to have this cabin. People who had been there when it was an active outfitter's, an active hunting cabin, had left notes. And so you had all these notes from, the, from 30 years of people who had, who had been through here and who had gone hunting. And then the area outside of it, you know, there was some tundra areas, there was a beautiful beach, there was um, um, some areas where you could see lots and lots of animal prints. And there was a grizzly bear that, that walked by the, down the beach. We could see it from our boat. It walked down the beach one day, and then the next day at the exact same time, it was walking on the beach, going in the other direction. <laughs> but then you would go for these hikes and you would find caribou tracks, and you would find muskox tracks, and you would find... Uh, you know, small animal tracks, and then there would be these grizzly tracks, and grizzly tracks, you know, the size of my hand wow. in the mud going through. And so that was just a really rich area. It has some amazing rocks, more colors of lichen than I ever thought existed, um, wildflowers, very small wildflowers all over the place. Had some really good views. It was one of the f um, few places that actually had some, you know, hills and changes in topography because um, it's, it's a lot of areas are fairly flat up there. So it was just a great place to explore and, and really kept us, you know, exploring for several days. During this northern part of the journey, many of the communities Ocean Watch made stops at were small and remote. Strickland says the crew wasn't sure how they'd be received. In some towns, we're a bit of a curiosity. In some of the, especially northern Arctic towns, they don't have a lot of boats come through. And it's just, you know, you don't have to be that old to remember a time where no boats were coming through. So we're still a bit of a, a we're a little bit of a curiosity. People were definitely interested to hear who we were and, and why we were there. Um, as far as the science, we weren't sure in a lot of the communities, especially a lot of the, a lot of the communities that are subsistence-based, um, communities that rely on hunting and fishing for their primary food source, um, necessarily how warmly we would be received. But one of the things we tried to do in every community was to not just talk about what we were doing, but to also ask questions and to listen. And as a consequence, we ended up um, pretty much everywhere we've gone, people have have taken the opportunity to talk to us, to share their stories and to share their background, um, and to share what issues regarding the ocean are important to them, and also the changes that they've seen in their lifetimes in their community. 
Ocean Watch's next official stop is Charleston, South Carolina, and they're expected to dock on October 12th. For tons more information about the Around the Americas voyage and the Ocean Watch boat, or the crew, log on to aroundtheamericas.org. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.